Let me pray for us, and then and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your grace in um, gathering us together as your people. We ask as as we look at your word this evening that we would see Jesus more clearly. That's our desire. That in all of Scripture we would see the things concerning Jesus. And um, so soften our hearts, open our minds, give us eyes to see maybe things that we've never seen before in your word. And um, and really our, our desire is that you would show us beautiful things from the scripture um, to help us not only fall in love with your word all over again, but to fall in love with you, the author of scripture, and to fall in love with your son who is primarily revealed in scripture. And so um, give us grace tonight as we meet together that you would help us learn, um, but that you would help us learn in a way that stirs up our affections towards you, that we would love you more. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, similar, to, similar to last week, I want to start out with, um, with just a brief caveat and say, again, this is going to be a load of information. Um, there's going to be a lot, a lot coming at you, and I was convicted this week wrestling with the prophets. We're going to be looking at this time period of the prophets. Um, I'm not as familiar with the prophets as other portions of Scripture, and so um, that just creates this barrier of, uh, of wrestling with the prophets um, in a new way. And, uh, and so there's going to be a lot coming uh, at you tonight from the prophets, hopefully profitable things, pun intended. Um, but but as, as we think through biblical theology, the story of King Jesus in the prophets, um, I hope that as we're talking and as you think about this, as you look back at your notes maybe this week, that really what you would be challenged by and what you'd be encouraged by is the wisdom and faithfulness of God that we see on display in the prophets. As we see this unified storyline of King Jesus play out in this time period, as we see all the things that God pulls together um, for this story to continue, that you would be blown away, maybe in a fresh way, at God's wisdom and faithfulness. So, um, so keep that in mind as we learn, because there's going to be a lot of just information, um, but this is information that's supposed to carry to you, you to a place of worship. Um, and, and specifically this week, looking at God's wisdom and faithfulness in how he's carried out um, his plan of redemption in Jesus. So thank you all for coming again tonight. I'm going to acknowledge again that biblical theology is a big theme. Um, it's difficult to wrap our arms around, but this is an important subject. That's why we're doing this class, because it's important. Um, and so I have to acknowledge we're not going to cover everything about biblical theology in three weeks. We're not going to come close to covering everything about biblical theology in three weeks. But I do want you to walk away with some concrete things. And so I want you to be able to walk away and say what biblical theology is, why it's important, how you can responsibly begin to incorporate biblical theology into your own Bible study and reading, and how this discipline results in worship of Jesus, why it's practical for us that you would have these things when you walk away, that you'd have clarity on these things about biblical theology and how useful it is in your Christian life. So that's the desire. And that being said, I want to start tonight by providing another definition of biblical theology. If you remember last week, we started with three definitions of biblical theology. Well, I'm going to get you another one tonight. And the definitions that I provided last week were admittedly, they were more about what biblical theology does than about what biblical theology is. So I'm going to kind of backfill tonight with a definition of what biblical theology is, approaching this from a different angle. And hopefully as we do that, you'll have a better grip on what biblical theology is and how it works. So um, I'm going to start by providing you you a modified definition from Gerhardus Voss. It's a great name. He has a book called Biblical Theology, Old and New Testaments. And so this is a modified version of his definition of biblical theology. And it is this. 
Biblical theology is a discipline which deals with the Bible from a historical standpoint, seeking to show the organic growth organic growth of the truths of the Bible from their seed form in the Garden of Eden to their form as a fully flowering tree at the close of the New Testament. Is that enough for you? Is that a mouthful? Biblical theology is a discipline which deals with the Bible from a historical standpoint, seeking to show the organic growth of the truths of the Bible from their seed form in the Garden of Eden to their form as a fully flowering tree at the close of the New Testament. That's a lot. And we're going to unpack that for just a couple minutes. As a discipline, biblical theology stands between two other disciplines in our process of trying to understand the Bible. Now, you might not think about this all the time, but we all run, this, un- run through this process, whether we're thinking about doing this process or not. So biblical theology stands between two other disciplines. It stands between the discipline of exegesis, another great word for you, that is pulling out from an individual Bible passage the original meaning of that passage. Biblical theology stands between exegesis and the discipline of systematic theology. Exegesis on one side, systematic theology on the other, other side. If exegesis is pulling out the meaning of a passage from a particular passage, systematic theology is piecing together the Bible's comprehensive teaching on any topic. So you can have a systematic theology of the Holy Spirit, of justice, of giving, of the end times, of Jesus, of the Trinity, a topical look at what the Bible says on anything. Biblical theology stands between these two. And it's an important step between exegesis and systematic theology. And to give you an illustration of what this is, going back to something I said last week, if we only do exegesis, if we're only looking at the original meaning of an individual passage, there might be a tendency for us to only focus on the diverse teaching of the Bible from that particular passage. We're, we're so caught up in the trees that we're not seeing the forest. So there can be that tendency where we never see the unified story of King Jesus in the Bible. On the flip side, if we only do systematics, if we only kind of pull together everything that the Bible says about a certain topic, there might be a tendency for us to only focus on the unity of the Bible, the unified teaching of the Bible. And so we would never see the beautiful diversity of how scripture talks about the story of King Jesus in a lot of different ways, all contributing to one picture. So what biblical theology does is it stands between these two disciplines. It takes into account both the unity and diversity of the biblical message. And so what I want you to hear is all of these disciplines are necessary, but biblical theology works as a bridge between exegesis, your study of one particular passage, and you going away and saying, well, this is what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, or this is what the Bible says about giving, or this is what the Bible says about the end times. Biblical theology is part of how you get there. It's important in that process. So how does biblical theology do that? Let's go back to the Gerhardus Voss definition that we've got. Thank you, Mr. Voss. Biblical theology is historical. It seeks to show the organic growth of the truths of the Bible over time. So let me give you an example of this, a timeline that that we can chart through the Bible. If we're using the image of a tree, which is the metaphor that we're kind of working with, the truth that we have revealed in the Garden of Eden would be like the tree when it's a seed. That's what it'd be like. The Garden of Eden, it's a perfect seed. It's a seed that one day is going to grow into a fully flowering tree. We know that's where it's headed. But at this point in the story of King Jesus, it's just a seed. That's the truth that we have in the Garden of Eden revealed at that point in biblical history. If we continue on this path, the truth that we have revealed during the period from Abraham to King Solomon would be like a tree when it's a sprout. 
Again, this sprout is perfect for what it is. We know that it's going to keep growing, but at this stage in history, it's just a sprout. We don't know exactly what kind of tree it's going to become. We don't know a ton about it. Then the truth that we have revealed during the period of the prophets, the period of time that we're going to be looking at tonight, that would be like this tree when it's a sapling. So it's slowly growing up. This sapling is also perfect as a sapling. We can begin to see some of the features of this tree, what it's going to be like when it's a fully grown tree. But at this point, it's still just a sapling. And then finally, the truth that we have revealed during the period of the New Testament would be like this tree when it's a fully grown, fully flowering tree. And so the growth of this perfect tree is now complete. We can see where this growth process from seed to sprout to sapling, where this was headed the whole time, what kind of tree we're arriving at. And what I want you to see is this is perfect at every stage. The seed is perfect for what it is. The sprout is perfect for what it is. The sapling is perfect for what it is. And then we've got the fully flowering tree. And that's where it's been heading the whole time. This is a process of growth, and this is how truth has been revealed to us in the Bible. This is how God has chosen to reveal his truth to us, and biblical theology studies this process of growth. It shows the organic growth of the truths of the Bible from their seed form in the Garden of Eden to their complete, fully flowering tree form in the New Testament, and it appreciates this growth at every stage along the way. And so before examining how that stage um, is a part of the story of King Jesus, it appreciates that stage where it's at. It appreciates the seed for what it is, the sapling for what it is, and so on. As a quick example, I'm just going to run quickly through a theme that we've talked about already, uh, the person of King Jesus, and how this is advanced through these different four stages. So you can think about the seed form in the Garden of Eden, about the person of King Jesus, and really, if you're looking in the Garden of Eden, not much is revealed about the person of King Jesus at this time. In fact, this notion of kingship hasn't even come up yet. It's absent from uh, this discussion of this person who is going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's really all that we know about this person in the Garden of Eden. That's the seed form of this truth. But then we can look at its sprout form from Abraham to King Solomon and we get some more details about this coming king. Definitely not a complete picture, but we're learning a lot more. This person's going to be from Abraham's line. He's going to be from the tribe of Judah. His character is anticipated in the law. This is what he's going to look like. He's going to be in the mold of David and Solomon, and he's going to be from David's line. But we still, even at this point in biblical history, we wouldn't have much of a notion that we should look for anything other than an ideal human king. We might not even know that this is going to all culminate into one person at this point in time. In its sapling form, continuing on in the prophets, this is what we're going to look at tonight, This picture of the coming king becomes much more clear, but it's still not complete. This coming king is a messianic figure. He's a special, unique person who seems to take on divine qualities. He's going to usher in an age where God sets everything right that's gone wrong in the world. And paradoxically, this king is going to suffer. And the people in this time didn't know exactly what that meant, but they knew it was going to happen. And then finally, we come to the New Testament, where we stand. And we have this truth about the person of Jesus Christ, the person of King Jesus, in its fully flowering tree form. This king that's been anticipated since the Garden of Eden, he is finally revealed in all of his glory. We have books about this person. The king's been anticipated. This is the God-man, Jesus Christ. He ushers in the kingdom of God through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, 
And he will come again to judge the world in righteousness and establish his eternal reign in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what we've got in the fully flowering tree form of the New Testament. So what biblical theology does is it appreciates a specific passage in its historical context. What stage of growth are we at from seed to sprout to sapling to the tree? Where is it at? Let's appreciate it there. But then it also charts that passage on this timeline that shows the growth of that specific theme from the beginning of Scripture to the very end. And it highlights how this theme contributes in this passage to the story of King Jesus. Biblical theology is a tough nut to crack, but it is worthwhile. Believe me. It allows us to fully appreciate the beauty of individual passages in Scripture without losing sight of the wondrous contribution of each passage to the story of King Jesus. Again, unity and diversity. An individual story, but it's a part of the one unified story of King Jesus. And the best way that I know to show, ha- to show the value of biblical theology is doing a class like this and actually working through the unified story, working through some beautiful, diverse themes, looking at some examples from the Bible. And you can say, hey, it might be hard to define, but this is really worthwhile. And I want to practice this. And so this week, we're specifically going to be looking at the time of the prophets. And first, this is a very similar structure to last week. We're going to get an overview of the major events of this time period. We're going to look at some important themes that are highlighted specifically in the prophets. And then we're going to examine a specific passage and how biblical theology shines light on this passage and and how it contributes to the story of King Jesus. And then um, at the end of class today, I'm going to give you some real quick things about how you might begin to practically incorporate biblical theology into your own Bible reading. And so that being said, by way of introduction, I know that's a lot to take in by way of introduction, but we're going to jump back into the story of King Jesus. And so I'm going to give just a brief overview of what we looked at last week, like very brief, and then we're going to jump into the prophets and what's going on during this time period. So um, buckle up, that's all I can say. Um, Last week, what we were looking at, um, the story of King Jesus begins with creation. That's pretty obvious. You might have already gotten there, whether you took the class or not. Um, The story of King Jesus begins with God creating everything from nothing. And Adam and Eve are the pinnacle of God's creation, but they disobey God. They're thrown out of the Garden of Eden, and sin and death enter the world. But then we saw that God begins to undo the effects of sin and death brought about by the disobedience of Adam. And he does that by choosing one man from the face of the earth, Abraham. And he's going to bless this man. And over time, we could see that God is keeping his promises to Abraham because there's the growth of his descendants into a nation. They're, they're delivered from slavery in Egypt through Moses. They're led back into the land that God had promised, and they start to take possession of that land. They, they begin to be ruled over by kings according to the law that God given them. And we finished last week by looking at King Solomon. And King Solomon's reign was this almost perfect representative picture of God's blessings poured out on Abraham. And I was uh, quick to say that it was almost perfect. And tonight we're going to talk about why it was almost perfect. If you want to be following along on a timeline, it might be helpful. That's on the back of your notes. Um, And so you can see how we got to this point. And then there's some helpful uh, dates and names for the period of the prophets as well. So you can follow along on that. There was a problem with Solomon's kingdom. There was a problem with Solomon's kingdom. It was temporary. During the reign of this third king of Israel, uh, Solomon, uh, God's kingdom is looking like it was promised. There's prosperity unlike God's people have ever known. But really, if you're reading through that portion of scripture, no sooner has Solomon's kingdom reached its peak than it begins to decline again. 
it reaches these heights that are like incredible. Whoa, all God's promises are coming true. This kingdom is incredible. And then it goes into a tailspin. Solomon marries a bunch of foreign wives. In his old age, he begins to worship foreign gods. The only reason that God doesn't rip the kingdom from Solomon's hands right there is because he had made a promise to King David. But what's really sad, within a generation of Solomon's death, within one generation, the kingdom of Israel has been divided between north and south. Ten tribes up north, two tribes down south. One generation after the pinnacle of God's kingdom in the Old Testament. 200 years after the reign of Solomon in 722 BC, that northern kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes, they've been conquered by the Assyrians and many of their people led away into exile. 150 years after that in 597 and 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah has been conquered as well by the Babylonians, many of its people taken into foreign lands in exile. Solomon's kingdom was great, but it was temporary, very, very temporary. The ongoing success of this expression of God's kingdom depended on God's people and God's kings keeping the law. Depended on God's people and God's kings keeping the law. And if we backtrack a little bit to the giving of the law, and we look at Deuteronomy 28, blessings for keeping God's law and curses for breaking God's law start to get laid out. You can turn to Deuteronomy 28 if you want. We're going to be there for just a couple minutes. But this section of curses for breaking the law starts off pretty intense. Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifteen. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. What are some of these curses? Look at verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them. And flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. That doesn't sound good. Verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. Verse 49 of Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. From the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you don't understand, they shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And then verse 64, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And this is what God's people begin to actually experience and live out at the, reign, at the end of the reign of King Solomon. And it continues into the time of the divided kingdom, and then it culminates in the exile. The people actually getting booted out of the land, both the northern kingdom of Israel by Assyria and the southern kingdom of Judah by Babylon. This slow dismantling of the kingdom of Solomon From the end of Solomon's reign to the time of the scattering of God's people among the nations, this is the primary cultural climate of the prophets. This slow downward spiral from the heights of Solomon's reign to exile. This is the background of the prophets. So that raises the question, what is a prophet in the Old Testament? 
Well, the pattern that we have established for what a prophet is and what a prophet does can be traced back. Um, I could probably go further than this, but a good picture of this is Moses and Aaron in Exodus. Simply put, Aaron is called to be Moses' mouthpiece. And it's in this function as Moses' mouthpiece that he's actually called a prophet in Exodus 7.1. He's called Moses' prophet. Von Roberts, a guy that I'm going to be referencing a few times tonight, he wrote a book called God's Big Picture. He defines a prophet in this way. God's prophets are his mouthpieces proclaiming his word to others. God's prophets are his mouthpieces proclaiming his word to others. And while Aaron is Moses' prophet, Moses himself is considered a great prophet. And there's actually a a promise in Deuteronomy 18 that God's going to raise up a great prophet in the future like Moses. And that eventually becomes fulfilled in Christ. But the next notable prophet to come along is Samuel. What's interesting about Samuel is that in addition to being a prophet, he's actually the last judge of Israel as well. And he's also the man who anoints the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. So not only is Samuel a prophet, but he acts as this prophetic bridge between the time of the judges, when God's putting these judges up to rule over his people and things are not going so well, to this time of kings where Saul and then David and then eventually Solomon begins to rule in Israel. Now there are other other prophets active uh, during this time of the United Kingdom with Saul and, uh, and then David and then Sa- uh, Solomon. And specifically, we can mention Nathan, who confronts King David about his sin with Bathsheba. There's other prophets that are active. But for our purposes, the next significant prophets to come on the scene are Elijah and Elisha. Now, Elijah and Elisha, they're ministering during the time of the divided kingdom, and they're ministering in the north. So among Israelites, the 10 tribes that were up north, that's where Elijah and Elisha are ministering. And you can see about their ministry in First and Second Kings. In some way, shape, or form, you look at all these men, and these would be considered early prophets, Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, they're carrying out this function of being God's mouthpieces, proclaiming God's word to the people. That's what they're doing. It's a pretty simple concept, really. What's interesting is, around this time, during this period of the divided kingdom, and then into this time where God's people are scattered among the nations, we see a group of prophets arise that aren't just speaking God's words, they're actually writing them down as well. And so against this backdrop, this this process of the slow dismantling of Solomon's kingdom, God's prophets continue to speak, but a number of them start to record their messages and books. And these are the 17 prophetic books that we have preserved for us in the Old Testament. Now, obviously, we're not going to be able to cover the precise historical context, the theological thrust of each of these 17 books, but what I want to do is give you three different ways to approach the prophets and think about each prophet just to get a little bit of an idea of their historical context, how to grapple with these prophets better. And so the main way that our Bibles split up the 17 prophetic books of the Old Testament is by length. Um, you've got major prophets and you've got minor prophets and it has nothing to do with importance. It solely has to do with how long are the books. And so the five major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then the 12 minor prophets, again, this is just a matter of how long their writing was. You've got the 12 minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. You had to have an interesting name to be a prophet. That was one of the, one of the stipulations. So that's one way that we, we split up prophets when we're talking about them. Is it a major prophet or is it a minor prophet? Another helpful way to distinguish p- between the prophetic books is who they're speaking to. 
Now, specifically, we can distinguish which of these two kingdoms the prophet was primarily speaking to. And so a good study Bible will tell you this, whether they're primarily operating up north to the northern tribes, these 10 tribes that were up north, or if they were primarily operating in the south, in Judah, the two tribes, you've got Benjamin and Judah. So where are they primarily prophesying? Who are they speaking to? The third way that's helpful to distinguish the prophets is when they're speaking. Obviously, they're all speaking kind of during this one period of time, but we can divide this period of time up into three other periods of time. So first, there are prophets who are speaking and writing before uh, the exiles, during the divided kingdom, but before the exile to Assyria in the north or Babylon in the south. These would be called pre-exilic prophets. In other words, before the exile, pre-exilic prophets. So examples of this would be Amos and Hosea to the northern kingdom of Israel. You've got Isaiah and Micah to the southern kingdom of Judah, and there's others. Those are examples. There are also prophets who are speaking and writing during the exiles themselves. These are the exilic prophets, very uh, creative names here. Exilic prophets, they're prophesying during the exile itself. And so, for example, Daniel's book, he's actually writing from Babylon. He's an exilic prophet. That's where he's writing from. And then finally, there are prophets who are speaking and writing after the exiles. God's people have begun to return to the land. These are the post-exilic prophets. You've got Zechariah and Malachi. These are examples of the prophets writing after God's people have begun to return. So this is a 30,000-foot view. This is a factual, coherent, unified storyline that's sweeping through this portion of Scripture. This is what we looked at last week from creation to King Solomon. Here we see it carry on from the end of King Solomon's reign, really to the end of the Old Testament. And this is going to culminate in the coming of King Jesus. You've got the division of Israel into two kingdoms. You've got the slow dismantling of the greatness of Solomon's kingdom as God brings about these covenant curses that he talks about in Deuteronomy 28. You've got the exile of God's people into foreign lands. And you've got God's provision of prophets, his mouthpieces proclaiming his word in dark times. And so this is a brief look at the unified storyline in the Bible. And this is one of the benefits of biblical theology that we've been looking at. We can understand this full sweep of the Bible and say, hey, this is all going to culminate in the coming of Jesus. But biblical theology doesn't just look at unity. It also looks at diversity. And so what are some of the beautiful, diverse themes that are highlighted by the prophets? And how are they going to culminate in the coming of King Jesus as well? So as we start to look at some of these uh, beautiful, diverse themes of the prophets, it'd be really helpful for us to actually just get a brief summary of what did the prophets talk about in general. And thankfully, Von Roberts has boiled down hundreds of pages of prophetic text to two main points. This is like the ultimate crib notes on the prophets. They primarily talked about two things, regardless of when they were speaking, where they were speaking, who they were speaking to. First, the prophets talked about the failure of Israel, And then second, the prophets talked about the future of Israel. So you've got the failure of Israel and the future of Israel. And much of what they say can kind of be placed under these two headings. And the first thing that that we really need to do when we approach the prophets is, is get away from this notion that the prophets primarily or mainly speak about things to come. They certainly do that. We're going to talk about that. That these are primarily guys that can foresee the future and tell God's people about what's coming. They do that, but they do much more than that as well. Much of what the prophets speak about is the failure of God's people to keep the law in their own time. The failure of God's people to keep the law in their own time. And I love this. I'm going to rip this off of Von Roberts too. He calls the prophets covenant enforcers. So you want like a hardcore look at your Old Testament? These are covenant enforcers. The prophets bring to the attention of God's people how they're breaking the law 
this covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai and the punishment they can expect if they continue in their disobedience. Now, in many ways, all they're doing is expounding the curses of Deuteronomy 28 for God's people in their current context. They're saying, hey, look at how you're breaking God's covenant. This is what's coming. This is how we're failing, and this is the punishment that we can expect for that failure. And one of the themes that paints this really clearly, it's pretty obvious, in the prophetic message is judgment. It's a strong theme in the prophetic books. And just like a lot of the themes that we looked at last week, judgment has its start in the Garden of Eden. Now, this is probably pretty obvious to us, and it seems like the most natural thing in the world. But God shows us in the Garden of Eden that disobedience to his word has severe consequences. Disobedience to his word has severe consequences. If you think back to the result of Adam's disobedience, sin and death enter the world, that's a pretty big deal. Adam and Eve are booted out of the garden. They're barred from the tree of life. Then we see this theme of judgment develop in the law. The consequences of disobedience are codified. And we read some of the selections from that in Deuteronomy 28 that sketch out, this is what judgment is going to look like. I'm going to spare you the gruesome details. You can go back and read Deuteronomy 28 yourself. But basically, God's people would be overthrown if they continued on this path of disobedience and then kicked out of the land. That's what Deuteronomy 28 talks about. Then you go forward into the period of judges and kings, and what you're seeing in the the judges and in the kings is really small-scale examples of how this might look. You have the peoples around Israel consistently pestering them. When they go astray from God's word, they'll come in and do raids and oppress God's people for a period of time. And it's kind of a small snapshot of what they might expect if Deuteronomy 28 happens on like a full-blown scale. But in those time periods, God either raises up a judge or a king to lead them out of that oppression. And then we come to the prophets who we're looking at tonight. And the type of judgment being threatened is Deuteronomy 28. You have broken the covenant. This is what you can expect to happen. God's people have flirted with disobedience, idolatry, injustice, and impure religious practices for generations at that point. So let that sink in when you're reading an especially fiery portion of the prophets. This is not like a short fuse reaction to God's people. This is a long time coming of consistent disobedience. And the prophets are warning God's people, God's judgment that he talked about in the law, it is right on our doorstep. We need to wake up is basically what they're saying. And in very vivid language, the prophets are warning people of imminent judgment for their disobedience by the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and others. They're saying, this is coming. It's right at our gates. And dramatic repentance is always possible for God's people. You can look at Joel and Jonah uh, for examples of that. But the type of judgment spoken of in Deuteronomy 28 does eventually overcome both the northern kingdom by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom of Judah by the Babylonians. As we continue to chart the growth of this theme of judgment, our minds naturally go as we get into the New Testament um, to what we think of as the ultimate judgment. We can look at something like Revelation 20, 11 to 15, and these small judgments are anticipating this time when everybody who's ever lived is going to stand before the throne of God and be judged in perfect righteousness, some unto eternal death and some unto eternal life. This is where it's heading towards. But the New Testament also speaks of another judgment that should be of very great encouragement for us in this room. Jesus, although he's innocent, is put on trial and condemned to death on a cross. Jesus condemned to death so that his people would not be condemned to death. Or in light of the curses that we've been talking about for Deuteronomy 28, Paul discusses this in a slightly different way in Galatians 3, 13. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. King Jesus cursed so that his people will not be cursed. King Jesus judged so that his people will not be judged. That's the trajectory that we're on with this theme of judgment that's being brought up in the prophets. But the prophets don't just speak about the failure of Israel and the judgment that's on their doorstep. They also speak about the future of Israel. And this is the perception of the prophets that we're a little bit more familiar with as they speak about what's to come for God's people. But even here, I want to kind of warn you that we don't get this image of the prophets kind of great gazing into crystal balls and just pulling out random facts about the future. Like, oh, you're going to go to Taco Bell tomorrow and eat a burrito. That's not what the prophets are doing. As a complement to thinking about the prophets as covenant enforcers, we can also think of them as covenant encouragers. For the prophets, the judgment that, that is coming is not the final word God has for his people. That's very important. And this, this important theme of covenant is reintroduced in the prophets. And so if you think back to last week, God's making these relational promises, his covenants with his people. You think of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And in the prophets, he speaks a new covenant, specifically in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. If you look at Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Whereas we've seen the old covenant resulted in judgment and exile for God's people, the new covenant will result in forgiveness and life. And this new covenant sees a renewal of so many of the concepts contained in the old covenant. And so there's going to be a new exodus, and these are all things the prophets talk about. There's going to be a new exodus. God's going to bring his people out of their exile from the nations. There's going to be a new temple. As glorious as the temple of Solomon was, there's going to be a new temple that outstrips it in every single way. There's going to be a new creation. So all the effects of the fall, the sin and death and decay brought into the world by Adam's disobedience, that's going to be completely overturned as all of creation is made new. There's going to be a new kingdom, not one that's temporary and dependent on the obedience of sinful men, one that is permanent and dependent only on the faithfulness of God. There will be a new king, not one with mixed affections and a divided heart, but one who is perfectly obedient and who will sit on David's throne forever. This is the message about the future the prophets have. And it's on this note of optimism about the future that the Old Testament closes. And so what we've seen as is at great cost, God's people have weathered this storm of God's judgment for their disobedience to the law, these covenant curses that were laid out in Deuteronomy 28, but there is hope on the horizon that God has better things for them. And so we've seen this failure of Israel and the judgment that's talked about. We've seen the future of Israel, this new covenant that they can expect. 
And so let's look at specifically at one passage in the Old Testament that shows both the failure of God's people, but also the great hope God's people have for the future. That's Ezekiel 34. And you can turn there. We're going to be there for just a few minutes. very quickly, there's obviously a lot more that we can say about the background of Ezekiel, but to kind of show you what I was talking about with the different characteristics of the prophets before, if we were going to classify Ezekiel, Ezekiel is a major prophet, and his book clocks in at 48 chapters, and so it's it's a big book. He's a major prophet. He's a southern prophet. He's among God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah that was comprised of those two tribes. You've got Benjamin and Judah. That's where he's working. But he is an exilic prophet. And so he's writing to the southern kingdom, but he's also in the southern kingdom's exile in Babylon. He's not in Israel when he's writing this. So that's a little bit of the background of what Ezekiel's uh, saying. In this passage in Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel begins by examining the failure of God's people. So what we've talked about, you've got the failure, you've got the future. He starts with the failure. And he talks about failure in a very specific area, their leadership. And he uses a very vivid illustration to make his point. The leaders of God's people are like shepherds, and God's people are their sheep. But then the things that he has to say about these shepherds is not very flattering. And so you can start in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord. Ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves, shouldn't shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. Now, the gist of this passage is pretty obvious. The leaders of God's people have been leading at the expense of God's people. The leaders of God's people have been leading at the expense of God's people. In other words, the leaders have gotten fat. God's people have gotten slaughtered. That's what's being pictured here. Then in 34.5, we see the results of this type of leadership. So the sheep were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Now a reading of this passage, apart from the insights of biblical theology, you can pick up quite a bit. Obviously, God is not commending this type of leadership. You can get that plainly from the passage. And the results of this type of leadership for God's people are not good. But what biblical theology does, as we've been talking about, it locates a specific passage within this unified story of King Jesus. And so we know, if you've been with us the last two weeks, we know all that's led up to this point in the story. And specifically, this is really important, we know what a low point in the story of King Jesus this really is. So when what Ezekiel is talking about, this isn't like a brief lapse in leadership that leads to a temporary setback for God's people. If you think about Solomon's kingdom as the peak of the mountain for God's people in the Old Testament, the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles where Ezekiel is riding from, that's the valley of the shadow of death. That's the disparity that's happening. That's where we are. Ezekiel is talking about God's people at their absolute lowest point because of their disobedience to God's law and the curses that came along with that. 
And even his language of the sheep being scattered over the face of the earth, that's reminiscent of Deuteronomy 28. You can go back and compare them. Biblical theology's emphasis on the unified story of King Jesus allows us to accurately plot a passage like this in its specific place in this big story and to understand that context more fully, to feel the weight of a passage like this, what Ezekiel is actually talking about. The stakes are large. But biblical theology also charts the growth of this beautiful, diverse themes from Genesis to Revelation and talks about how these themes contribute to the story of King Jesus. So the obvious theme in this passage is leadership. And it can be traced back to Moses and his leadership of God's people during the Exodus. And for the most part, if we look back at Moses, Moses showed what a leader should look like. He intercedes for the people. He's humble. He's faithful. Then we have the law given through Moses, and it's got a lot to say about what a leader should look like as well. And then if you get to the period of the the judges, we actually have these pretty negative examples of leaders shouldn't look like this most of the time. And you get to the kings, and it's kind of a mixed bag. You've got some good kings, you've got some bad kings, you've got some kings in the middle. But the point is this, if we trace this theme of leadership in the Bible up to the book of Ezekiel, where we are in chapter 34, we've got a very clear picture of who should be leading God's people. These shepherds are not them. And it should be heartbreaking for us to see God's people being led by self-serving gluttons instead of humble kings who are soaking themselves in God's word. That's what the leaders should be. These shepherds are not them. And the offense is heightened even more when you think about the fact that he uses the imagery of shepherds. Arguably the two greatest leaders of God's people in history up to this point are Moses and David. They're shepherds. These shepherds in Ezekiel 34 couldn't be further from the pattern that Moses and David set out. Intercessory leadership, pleading for God's people Shepherds after God's heart. What biblical theology does is it gives us a three-dimensional picture of the depths of a failure in the passages like this. The depths of the failure of the leaders of God's people, but it also prepares us for what Ezekiel talks about next. Because next he talks about the future of God's people. Look at verse 11 in Ezekiel 34. Really soak this in. Thus says the Lord God, Behold I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Can you imagine what type of comfort that might provide to a Judean exile sitting in Babylon? This word that that Ezekiel has from God, this is hope. This word from God through Ezekiel, this is a future for God's people. 
This word from God through Ezekiel says, the curse of the covenant is not my final word. This word from God through Ezekiel says, this exile won't last forever. This word from God through Ezekiel says, when the leaders of God's people fail as shepherds of his flock, God himself will be a shepherd for his people. What biblical theology does is it allows us to feel the full weight of a passage like Ezekiel 34 in its specific place in the story of King Jesus. It allows us to feel the depths of despair of a Judean exile in Babylon living under the curses of the covenant. And it also allows us to feel their glorious hope for a future when God's people will be taken out of exile by God himself. But what's great about biblical theology for us under the new covenant is it also allows us to see what a Judean exile in Ezekiel's time never would have seen. The beautiful culmination of this promise in King Jesus. They didn't have that. We do. As Christians, we can't help but think of John ten eleven. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Instead of slaughtering the fat and clothing himself in wool, Jesus will lay down his life for the sheep. And we could go through each one of the failures that were listed in Ezekiel 34, the shepherds of God's people, and we could see how King Jesus perfectly shepherds his sheep. King Jesus is God himself in flesh, coming to seek out his sheep and rescue them. The Judean exiles had this hope in the form of a sapling. We get to see this hope as a full flowering tree. That's what biblical theology does. That's why it's worth it. Now, very briefly, as, as we wrap up tonight, I want to close um, with a few pointers. And I, I don't think I have much written down. I don't even know if I have a heading for that. So um, you can take notes on, on what's helpful for you. Um, but about what you might be able to do to start to incorporate biblical theology um, into your own Bible reading, into your own Bible study. So we're going to run through a few things. And just like last week, we're going to close with just a brief time of questions, if anybody has them, or discussion points. Um, but if you think about beginning to incorporate biblical theology into your own Bible study, into your own Bible reading, um, honestly, a class like this is a good start. Uh, I know there's a lot of information coming at you. Um, you've got some notes. Hopefully, you can, you can tuck in your Bible and look back at these things. But what you're getting in a class like this is an overview of this unified story of King Jesus from creation um, to consummation, which we're going to get at next week. We get to see the development of some specific, specific themes. Last week we looked at sacrifice and kingdom. This week we looked at judgment and covenant. We also looked at leadership as kind of a bonus um, this week. But these are some themes that you can start to look for in your Bible reading. And these particular themes are everywhere. Um, and so uh, we, we've also been interacting with some specific passages, seeing what it might look like to interact with the passage um, with these tools of biblical theology. Um, one practical thing that, that I think would be helpful is just stick this timeline in the leaflet of your Bible. Stick it next to wherever you read your Bible. And as you're opening up the Bible and, and reading a specific passage, try to chart where you are on this timeline. What's led up to this point in biblical history? What's going to come after this point in biblical history? And as you do those things, you start to see where you are in the story of King Jesus. And so um, so you can tuck those notes away um, 
an example of that, if you're reading Ezra or Nehemiah, these are historical books, you can think through the fact that these are coming after God's people have been allowed back from the land of exile. You can think about the, all the events that we've talked about for the last two weeks that led up to this point of God's people leaving the land, actually being booted out of the land, and then eventually being able to come back. Um, and so you can start to chart these things where they fall in the story of King Jesus and fill in the context that way. Um, something helpful uh, we talked about God's kingdom last week, God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so something, uh, again, helping to chart where you are in the story of King Jesus that you can ask is, what does the kingdom of God look like in this time? If you're in the Garden of Eden, God's people are Adam and Eve. God's place is the garden and God's rule is that he's speaking directly to Adam and Eve. And you can see that theme develop throughout the Bible. So you can ask, what does the kingdom of God look like in this time that I'm reading? Um... If you're just starting out and reading the Bible, I think it'd be helpful to just take notes of major themes that you notice in a chapter. Um, If themes like uh, uh, leadership are coming up, if themes like covenant are coming up, um, if themes like judgment are coming up, whatever, you know, we've talked about, but even other themes as well, start to make note of that. And if you've been reading the Bible for a little while and you start to notice themes cropping up, this is really where you start to get to do biblical theology is, where have I seen this theme crop up before? And start to actually chart the development of a theme over time of, well, I've seen this the- same theme talked about in Genesis. I've seen the same theme, theme kind of talked about in like First Kings. I've seen this same theme talked about in the prophets. And then the same theme gets brought up in the New Testament in some way. Where have you seen that? And how does the Bible develop that theme over the time from Genesis to Revelation? So you can start to do that as you're reading. If you're in the Old Testament, a good question to ask, is this passage referenced anywhere in the New Testament? If it does, what does the New Testament say about it? A lot of the New Testament is interpreting the Old Testament in light of the coming of Christ. And so reading that um, in that way. Um, After you've answered questions uh, for yourself, maybe about the meaning of a particular passage, um, in its specific context, I mean, even if you're doing something as simple as answering who, what, when, where, why questions about a Bible passage, just going through that after you've answered those types of questions, a really good question to ask in the Old Testament is, does this passage anticipate what God's going to do through Jesus in any way? Does this passage anticipate what God is going to do through Jesus in any way? These questions, and really Bible study really is just asking questions of the Bible, trying to get biblical answers back from them. These questions, this is just a sketch. I want you to use whatever is helpful and practical for you. Um, The really tough answer to how to start to incorporate biblical theology into your own Bible study is with lots of practice and over a long period of time. Um, This isn't something that really happens overnight, but it's worth starting out now and starting to think this way, even as you're reading the Bible. Um, but be patient with it. Uh, last week I mentioned studying in community. So things that you're seeing from the Word, feel free to talk to other people about them. And they might say, you're off your rocker, and it's not talking about that. And that's okay. Um, but sometimes they may say, wow, I've never noticed that from the Word before. That's really great. Um, and so uh, with lots of practice over a long period of time, um, not something you'll get overnight, but this is worthwhile. And, and again, in, in our final week next week, um, I hope you'll s- continue to see the benefit of this, of why it's worth 
um, wrestling with biblical theology. And, and next week specifically, I'm a reader, so I'm going to recommend some books uh, that might help you start out along this path, books that would complement what I've been saying in this class might be helpful to you. Um, so I'll recommend some books next week. Um, and on that note, before I forget to say this, uh, next week it's going to be uh, the same place. We're going to start a half an hour later. Image Bearers is doing their men's ministry um, uh, kickoff uh, next week. And so just to leave so, uh, some buffer between um, their event and this class, we're going to start at 7 instead of at 6.30. So we'll run from 7 to 8 next week. And we're going to be looking at the coming of Jesus in the New Testament, the king's arrival, um, but also at the king's return next week, that Jesus is coming back. And so we'll cover those two um, periods of time and things that we need to know about uh, the coming of Christ, um, his incarnation, but also about his return. Um, before I close this in prayer, we've got a few minutes. Um, anybody have maybe questions you've been stewing on all week? The Martinos threatened to ask me really hard questions. So we'll see if they were just bluffing or not. Um, but if anybody has questions or even just things that, hey, this stood out to me or this was helpful or this wasn't helpful. Jerry? It's legal. a plug while you guys are thinking we're blessed with preachers that do this every week and they might not do it explicitly um, um, but when you have these glasses on we have preachers that are faithfully um, acknowledging the unified story of the bible and also the beautiful diversity of the bible and so thankful that we have preachers that way josh Any other thoughts on that from this morning, the text? Anybody else? I would encourage you, uh, uh, just as another practical tip of listening to sermons at our church with these ears on, you'll start to see 
Jerry and whoever else is preaching, practicing this every week. And so um, it's really beautiful to see that happen for us, and we benefit from that um, on a regular basis. Any other thoughts uh, from tonight or questions from tonight? Yeah, Max. Yeah. Is that is that something to look into as well when you're reading through this about how forceful they're being towards the like God's commandments? I don't know. Um if I'm understanding you correctly, yeah. I mean, everybody wasn't disobedient in the same way. And so you'll see, I mean, in the passage we looked at, of course, you see the leaders singled out. Um, and you can see, uh, you know, an, another big theme in the prophets is um, basically religious hypocrisy, carrying out the um, outward pomp and circumstance of uh, the, re- the religious rites that God set up, but with no heart behind it. And so... Um, you know, talking about making sacrifices, um, but not showing mercy and things like that. And and so, yeah, people are singled out for sure. And another theme that we didn't touch on at all, but is a big theme, is that there are faithful people during this time period. And so there's this theme of the remnant. It's huge. And um, these people are being sympathized with. They're not being, you know, condemned. These are people that are riding out judgment because of what's going on around them. God's faithful people. And um, so I don't, I don't know if that answered your question or not, but yes, um, you, you do see prophets talking to different people with different forms of severity. And um, so is that, is that what you're asking a little bit? Okay. Jerry? Either uh, thoughts or comments or questions? Let me pray for us and um, <clears throat> feel free to stick around and discuss, but let me pray. God, thanks for your grace. Thank you that the curses of the covenant were not your final word, that you actually had a new covenant for us and that so easy for us as, as your new covenant people to take that for granted but we're in a period of blessings. It's just unfathomable what you've done for us in Christ. And so we're grateful for that, Lord. Um, But help us to appreciate the story that that got us here, the things that led up to the new covenant. Um, But Lord, we are grateful for Christ's broken body and his spilled blood for us that's purchased this new covenant for us. Um, we're thankful for your grace. Um, the pages of, of your word just drip your grace to sinful, disobedient, stubborn people. And so we're thankful for that, Lord. And um, pray that 
as we go from this place, our, our hearts would be softened, our eyes would be opened um, to your goodness to us in Christ. Amen.